when Christ returns to the world, he will establish his kingdom on the earth. He will gather the Jewish people together. He will rebuild the temple and he will reign in a kingdom over all the world in righteousness and in peace. And when he does this, he will be opposed by many people. And tragically, many of those people who will be opposing him will believe that they are defending him and then they are acting in his name. And we find that that's because they have a false understanding, a misinterpretation of the chapter that we're about to look at tonight. So this study that we're doing tonight is of crucial importance. And it demonstrates the importance of prophecy and understanding the proper interpretation of prophecy. So 2 Thessalonians 2 is known as this chapter, which is talking about the man of sin or lawlessness, this man who is the son of perdition, one that leads people into destruction. And it's a figure associated with this broad term of the Antichrist, which is linked by several passages in scripture. So to get a full understanding of this, sorry, excuse me, I've just gone over. So to get a full understanding of this then, I'd first like to talk about the background of the book to get an understanding of why the message was written to the Thessalonians specifically, then to consider what was meant by the term antichrist, how we use this term, how we can link the man of sin to it in other passages of scripture. And after this, we'll consider suggestions about who this figure is, comparing the candidates to scripture. And finally, then we'll consider that message in the chapter for us, to the believers at the time and to us. So as I've suggested, it's first important to get an idea about the background of the book and to establish the context in which Paul is sending this message. So we read about Paul's visit to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. So let's just turn there to begin with. So Acts chapter 17. So we read about this visit in this chapter, and we find that the visit was initially very successful and that many of the people we read believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But in a sign of what was to become almost the permanent situation for this new ecclesia, disbelieving Jews immediately appealed to the authority of Rome to persecute and to destroy it in its infancy. In verses five to eight, we can read. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So after this, Paul and Silas would be forced to escape and flee Thessalonica to Berea, leaving the ecclesia there in a particularly vulnerable situation. And in fact, this persecution would be so intense that Paul was forbidden to visit in spite of his strong desire to do so. We would suggest, and we can see this perhaps in 1 Thessalonians 3. I don't need to turn there now, but I'll read it for you. Paul says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, 
endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And this Satan then seems to be referring to the Jewish leaders in collaboration with Roman authorities, preventing Paul's visit. Fortunately, Timothy would be able to visit the Thessalonians and witness the great faith which they had built up in the face of extremely trying circumstances. It's so true, isn't it, that it's often during tribulations where faith is at its strongest. You can see us in the world today, where the most affluent countries are often the least religious. You can expand this to modern Israel with a secular population being the plurality of the country. And that's in spite of its great wealth, its great technological success. And the decline in our faith in our own countries is very obvious to see. We are countries which are very uh, non-religious, where even the main religious institutions are barely asking for any kind of faith from their followers. The Church of England being the best example. We can compare that then to parts of Africa which have encountered war, which have encountered poverty and persecution, where the ecclesia is actually growing at its fastest rate, where we see the biggest numbers of Christadelphians and the biggest growth in ecclesias. It's in Africa and it's in these parts of the world where there's a lot of persecution, there's war, etc. And we can see then that these problems of persecution, of suffering, often have a purpose in God's plan. And this must have been true of the Thessalonians also. But so after hearing this report from Timothy about the state of the ecclesia, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians. His intention in writing this letter was to comfort the ecclesia, which was continuing to be placed under this very severe persecution. Paul would comfort the ecclesia by encouraging them to look towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when unrighteous human authority and government, including Rome and its successors, would be destroyed and could no longer oppress his followers. The hope of Christ's return, of course, should be our main comfort as well. And it should be that to which we look to for encouragement. No worldly politician, policy or movement will be able to solve the world's problems. Only with the establishment of the kingdom of God will there be a solution to the problems that we face. And so we find that the theme of the return of Christ is continuous throughout the first letter. Indeed, at the end of every chapter of this first letter, there is an explicit reference to Christ's return. We can read in chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. For they them shall show us of what matter of entering in we had unto you, how we turned you from God to idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 23. I pray God, your whole spirit, and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the believers in Thessalonica are to be encouraged as we are by the hope of the kingdom and Christ's return. So that's the purpose of the first book, or the first letter. And it's thought that 2 Thessalonians 2 then, which we want to look at now for our study, 
was written only a few months after this first letter, so the second letter, only a few months after. A situation seems to have developed in the Ecclesia, which had required Paul to write a subsequent letter. And it's important to remember the nature of this Ecclesia. It's one which had very limited contact with Paul due to its persecution. And it's possibly one which may have had quite a large Gentile population as well. And so these Gentiles and people who are perhaps separated from Paul and the centre of the Ecclesia and of the Ecclesias abroad would perhaps be more malleable in this early part of their growing understanding of the truth. And as such, Paul's letter and his remarks about the return of Christ had caused some confusion in the Ecclesia about when Christ would return. And this has subsequently impacted the behaviour of many members of the Ecclesia. Many had come to believe that Christ's return was about to come any moment and had started to disregard their duties to others at work, to the community, or as a member of their family. And we also read in 2 Thessalonians 2, our chapter, verse 1, that there had been false reports from Paul that Christ had already returned. Who was sending these reports? We can speculate, it could have been Jewish authorities um, trying to impact the ecclesia or some other uh, force, but we're not sure for certain. The purpose of 2 Thessalonians then was to address the issue of Christ's return and what should be expected to happen before it. Paul starts the letter by noting the continued faith and perseverance of the Ecclesia. He reminds them again that Christ will return and he will judge their persecutors. In chapter 1 verse 7 we read, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In the second chapter itself, then, Paul starts to address the issues which have arisen. Let's recap the first two verses, and we should now be turning over to 2 Thessalonians 2, our chapter for tonight, having established the kind of background. So let's recap the first two verses, just reading the first two verses of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Paul addresses the issue of Christ's return and the fact that people are confused about it. And he then makes an important statement in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So this verse reveals that there will be an apostasy within the ecclesia first, before Christ's return. Apostasy, of course, is this term falling away, meaning a group within the ecclesia which will deviate from the truth and take believers with them. This means that it's necessary for them to have at one point been in the truth. We'll think about this bit later on and so they're led by this man of sin regardless of background or religious denomination most people have associated this figure that we read about as the antichrist or associate him with the antichrist as a man who appears to oppose christ and assert his authority over the truth let's see if we can compare details about the man of sin to other verses which we suggest are also about the Antichrist. So before we do that, 
uh, we may just want to have a, another reading, a quick recap perhaps of 2 Thessalonians uh, and the second chapter. Um, or in fact, I think probably for brevity, if we just probably move forwards, we probably don't need a direct recap of it. Um, but we have this description, haven't we, that we've read already at the beginning. So we've had our description that we've read. Let's let's now just cross-reference cross to Thessalonians 2 with other parts of scripture to see if we can make that link more clearly. So firstly, we have Jesus warning about false prophets. That's not on this graph, but it's one of the things which we can talk about. So Jesus himself warns of these false prophets. Although he's often talking about people prior to AD 70, we can still find it useful in understanding the nature of the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. So in Mark 13, verse six, he says, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Matthew 24, verse 24, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And in Matthew 7, verse 15, we're told to be aware of false prophets, a clear warning from Christ that people would turn away from the truth and that a falling away would occur without his leadership and his presence in the world. The only place, however, in the Bible where we have a direct reference to the Antichrist itself as a force is in 1 John and chapters 2 and also 4 as well. So let's just go to that chapter first of all. So first of all, 1 John chapter 2. So I'll just let people turn that. Okay, so 1 John chapter 2, and we'll go for 18 to 22. Um, so we read, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So this passage demonstrates two things which correlate with the man of sin. We see that the Antichrist, first of all, will come from the Ecclesia. These people once had the truth, but no longer do. We read, they went out from us. This is evident in 2 Thessalonians 2, as we are told that the man of sin is linked to this falling away or apostasy, which must occur before Christ returns. We also learn that the Antichrist is not a singular person, but is many different people. We read, didn't we, that there are many Antichrists. This links very clearly with 2 Thessalonians 2, where we are told that the apostasy existed at the time Paul is writing to quote from verse seven, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. So just to say, we should have a marker in 2 Thessalonians 2, and then the chapters that we'll be looking at uh, at all points. 
So he says, the mystery of iniquity have already worked. And we also read that this force is also there when Christ returns. To quote verse 8 from 2 Thessalonians. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Clearly then, we cannot be talking about one single man. No man is eternal and could not possibly live over 2,000 years. So we're not talking about a single man. That's impossible. Instead, there must be a series of men who represent a system of apostasy and opposition to Christ. We also learn later on that the Antichrist is one who denies the very nature of Christ. And we read this again in 1 John 4, 1 and 3, and 2 John 1 and 7. We don't have time. He started to look at that. And again, in those chapters, we read about many deceivers and many false prophets, indicating that this is a movement, including more than one person. So they have come from the ecclesia, this man of sin, this antichrist. They have perhaps corrupted the doctrines as well as, as they have been of falling away. And then they existed at the time of Paul and they will continue to the return of Christ. So that means it cannot be one man. It must be a number of men. And they're representative of the system. So outside of these few verses, the top three um, on the graph, we don't see the word antichrist mentioned, but we do have a number of figures who share the characteristics, those same characteristics, as a system represented by a man or a series of men who stand against Christ. So we'll next go and have a look at Daniel. So we see this similar sort of figure represented by the horn, by the little horn. And when we're talking about Antichrist, again, we're thinking about a man, we're thinking about a series of men, we're thinking about a system of apostasy and a man at the top of it. So Daniel 7, which we're familiar with, takes us through the empires of man, uh, which will succeed the Babylonian empire, continuing until Christ's return, when all the kingdoms of men will be destroyed and replaced with God's kingdom. So just make sure you've turned there so we can cross-reference. So we see in this passage the kingdoms of men being represented by beasts, and the final of these beasts, we suggest, is symbolic of Rome, consisting of that iron and being in comparison to the legs of iron of Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel 2. And this beast has a number of horns, and ultimately one horn will replace a number of them. And this horn was very different in that it had eyes, that it had a mouth. It's like a man thinking about back to the idea of the man of sin. And we read that the horn in verse eight of our chapter speaks great things. And in verse 25, will speak great words against the most high. This surely reminds us, doesn't it, of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse four. We read, he exalteth himself over all that is called God. That is certainly speaking great words against the most high. In verse 21, it makes war with the saints and thinks to change times and laws. Again, this is the spirit of the man of sin and the Antichrist, corrupting the truth, putting its power above everything else. Ultimately, we also learn that the little horn is destroyed by Christ and the saints. We read, the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. This once again compares very well with 2 Thessalonians 2, where we read that the Lord will consume the man of sin with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. Unsurprisingly, perhaps we also find similar figures in Revelation. One figure similar to the man of sin is the false prophet 
mentioned in chapters 16, 19, and 20. We don't get a great deal of information about him, but it's clear that he's the figure of a man, like the man of sin, who is associated with the apostate system, and perhaps represents an allusion to the previous false prophets of the Old Testament who attempted to appear like the Hebrew prophets, but were not speaking on the authority of God. This is exactly what the man of sin is doing in 2 Thessalonians 2, acting on his own authority and not God's, but standing in his place. We also read that the false prophet is a deceiver, like the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. And in Revelation 19, verse 20, we read that he had wrought miracles before him. And we see that the man of sin also does this in verse 9. We read of his power and signs and lying wonders. Finally, then, the false prophet is destroyed by Christ and his saints in Revelation 20, verse 10, just as we've already read, the man of sin and his system are. So it must be a similar figure, a similar man. In Revelation 13, also, we read of the beast of the sea who appears like Christ and carries out false miracles and signs, who persecutes the saints, sorry, that should be earth, whose symbol 666 is the number of a man. And we can compare all these things again to the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. Finally, in Revelation 17, we see a similar figure, this time more symbolic of the system the man of sin is associated with than the man. It's a system which is full of blasphemy as the man of sin is, claiming himself to be the ultimate authority. It's Roman in nature, like the little horn, as the seven heads of the beast we see representing Rome being the seven hills on which it sits. It has great power over the earth. It persecutes the saints and opposes Christ at his return. Interestingly, the name on the woman's forehead is Mystery Babylon the Great. If we can think back to the reading at the start in 2 Thessalonians 2 in verse 7, we also read the man of sin and his system is called the mystery of iniquity. So mystery, this term mystery is coming up again. And just as the man of sin is the son of perdition or destruction, so too we read that this beast will go into perdition. So with all that, we want to try and create a sort of checklist, or we can create a checklist of a definition of the Antichrist. Based upon all these clues, clues from 2 Thessalonians 2, but also all these links across scripture. So... I've noted down a series of points by which we can check the identification of the Antichrist. So number one, it's not one man, but it's represented by a series of men who are holders of the same title or role. Two, the men in this role represent a system or movement. Number three, the movement is apostate in nature, i.e. it comes from the ecclesia or the church. Four, the system has changed the original teaching of Christ and the prophets. Five, it's Roman in origin and being, as we've read in Daniel and Revelation. Six, it proclaims higher authority than God and will oppose his saints. And ultimately then, it will be destroyed by Christ at his return. So our next challenge, our next question, is to find out who this figure is and to suggest who it might be. So there's some perhaps indicators of who we might think um, on the slide. So when it comes to the question of how to view prophecy, there's generally three camps, which I've pointed out on the screen. 
There's the Praetorist view, there's the Continuous Historic or the Historicist view, and there's the Futurist view. The Praetorist view suggests that the prophecies we now read generally happened in our past, or at the time contemporary to the books that the Bible were written. The Futurist view, unsurprisingly, suggests that most of prophecy can be seen as an allusion to future events ahead of our time, and certainly thousands of years after the prophecies were first recorded. Finally then, the continuous historic or historicist view suggests that many of the prophecies, particularly those of Revelation, are to occur over a period, starting from the time they are written, lasting up to the return of Christ. In that sense, then, the prophecies are occurring throughout history, hence the term historicist. We can look back at prophecies which have already occurred and also look forward to prophecies which are yet to be fulfilled when we look at the historicist view. Each camp, therefore, also has its own take on the Antichrist and therefore also identify the man of sin. The Praetorist view has its own take on the Antichrist, suggesting that it was likely a figure who existed in the past who persecuted the church. This is generally suggested by the Catholic Church who seek to deflect attention from themselves as a potential Antichrist candidate, as we'll later see. The Praetorist view necessitates that the Antichrist must be contemporary to when these things are written. And the best candidate, therefore, for the man of sin would be someone like a Roman emperor who persecuted the church. The only real persecutor of the ecclesia at the time would really have been the church. It would really have been the empire, the Roman empire. Paul sometimes refers to the pagan Roman authorities as Satan, Satan hindering him. So we can see where this idea is coming from. This must be false, however, because we know that this same force will be fighting Christ at his return, as we've already established. This also has no relation to the church. A pagan Roman emperor or authority could not have come from the church. And perhaps the more popular view, though, and currently dominant one amongst Christians, is the futurist idea of the Antichrist. This view is held both by many Catholics, and perhaps even more popularly now by Protestants. And it suggests that the Antichrist is a figure who will come at the end of the world, just prior to Christ's return. He'll establish a worldwide dictatorship. He'll persecute the Christians. He'll rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, claiming to represent God. And there's been all sorts of recent suggestions of who it could be, um, because they're always looking for candidates. Uh, again, it could be anyone. Um, it's a very easy thing to believe. You don't have to point out anyone. Um, you might be in a similar religious authority it's a very ecumenical um, version of the antichrist and so recent suggestions have included famously Barack Obama the American right were obsessed with this for many years um, Bill Gates we were talking earlier has been a popular figure because they believe he's going to microchip everyone and um, make them carry the mark of the beast um, has been a long time thing and particularly popular in these current circumstances in which we live so it's usually included all these kind of figures, politicians, uh, tech people, billionaires, and usually those who aren't favored by the American right, um, because this tends to be coming from sort of right-wing American evangelicals. A key verse which makes them often believe this, this futurist antichrist, is 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, where we read that the man of sin sits in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And they assume that this must mean the literal temple of God in Jerusalem. Since the temple hasn't existed 
for 2000 years, they believe that the Antichrist must build the temple in Jerusalem in order to sit in it in the first place. And looking at the verses we've considered, for instance, in Revelation 13 and 17, it seems that the Antichrist and his system will have dominion over the entire world. So on the basis of some of these verses we've looked at and other sort of futurist quotes and ideas, um, they have their own sort of checklist and it looks like this. One, it will be one man. Two, they'll claim to represent God. Three, it will be Jewish in origin and supported by the Jews, which is why he will, in the first place, number four, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and five, will establish a global government. If we look at this list, we'll realise something. The futurist description of the Antichrist describes exactly what Christ himself will do. He will be supported by the Jews as the king of Israel. He will build Ezekiel's temple. He will establish global government where all the nations will come up to Jerusalem, as we read in Zechariah. This false understanding then will tragically lead to many to oppose Christ at his return. Again, emphasizing the real importance of a proper understanding of prophecy and scripture. Let's compare this with the checklist of the characteristics of the Antichrist, which we find from scripture rather than from evangelical books or films. If we look, we find it really doesn't fit. The futurist Antichrist, one man, the Antichrist in scripture, more than one person, it's a series of people. It's a movement, not just one person. He'll rebuild the temple. There's nothing about that. He'll establish global government. We don't read that in terms of literally reigning. Jewish in origin, no, it's Roman in origin. It comes from the ecclesia. It denies the nature of Christ, etc. So there's a lot of differences between the two. They don't fit in any way. So we have to discount the futurist one. And actually the futurist one is the most dangerous out of all of them. The praetorist one is not necessarily going to be dangerous. It just means that people won't, will be ignorant potentially um, to identifying the antichrist, but it doesn't mean that they'll actually oppose Christ. So the most dangerous misinterpretation is this futurist idea. Um, and it will cause people, unfortunately, to oppose Christ at his return. And what's interesting is the origin of these um, beliefs. If we take a look at this, I very much like this cartoon, um, well, sort of cartoon, um, but it demonstrates the origins of these different claims of who the Antichrist is. So we can see both of them, both the futurist one and the praetorist idea of who the Antichrist is, was put forward by um, Catholic thinkers, Catholic theologians, to try and deflect attention from the true identification of the Antichrist. And so, although it's now Protestants and evangelicals who generally believe in the futurist view, um, it was actually Catholic in origin, and at least papal and Jesuit um, in origin. Um, the Protestants at one point, and the evangelicals even at one point, would have believed that it was the Pope. And that was the mainstream Protestant view in the past, that the Pope was the Antichrist. Um, but now we find that's very rare in Protestant denominations. Increasingly, it's this futurist view. And so the Jesuits, the Catholic leaders have been very successful in deflecting attention away from um, the traditional identification of the Antichrist as the Pope 
and towards this future antichrist we can see here this imaginary future antichrist who will be this dictator ruling over the world building a temple in jerusalem and also still deflecting attention down to this past antichrist uh, the sort of figure of the roman emperor okay this brings us on then uh, to the final view of the antichrist which is the continuous historic uh, or historicist view they argue that the antichrist must come from the ecclesia or the church and has existed and will exist from the first century church until the end of the kingdom of men it will corrupt the truth and will carry out false miracles and wonders. It will oppose Christ and persecute the true believers. Importantly, it must be a system and one which is headed by a man, but not a single man, since as we've considered, no man can live for 2000 years. Instead, then it must be a series of men. Consider seriously for a moment, what other system can this describe than the Roman Catholic Church and the position of the Pope? The Catholic Church has its origins in the first centuries of Christendom, i.e. at the time Paul was speaking. The Catholic Church itself likes to proclaim this. And while there are other religious titles that have passed on from one man to another for centuries, there is certainly no other that claims to be Christian in nature and has not only its origin, but its centre in Rome. And I would suggest strongly then that the historicist view remains the correct and is the only one which can fit the established criteria of the Antichrist the man of sin and his system, which we've established in the previous slides. Let's now, having established that, carefully compare the characteristics of the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 to the papacy and his church. So we want to go back now, just looking at 2 Thessalonians 2 for the rest of our period and comparing that to the actions of the Catholic church and the papacy. So firstly, if we look at verse three, we read that there is an apostasy to come first or a falling away. As mentioned previously, Catholic authorities have claimed that it's impossible for the church to be this apostasy since they can trace their origins back to the early church. They even claim that the Pope is part of a direct line going back to Peter. We can see in this image, um, something which you'll often find, uh, there will be a kind of timeline of the Catholic Church going on and then there'll be all the extra timelines coming out of the new churches and how they were falling away from the original church, whereas the Catholic Church has remained the one true church throughout all time. And in sort of bigger versions of this, you'll see Luther coming out later on, you know, if we go back okay, sort of several hundred years later, um, you'll see over sex. Sometimes I'll put the Christadelphians on the um, timeline as well. Um, so they'll show loads of different sects coming out and this sort of strong single stream of the Catholic Church throughout history. And so they say, uh, you know, instead, it's really Protestants, it's men like Luther, um, who must be with the apostasy since they left the Catholic Church. They are the falling away, they are the apostasy. Unfortunately for them, this very statement backs up the claim that the apostasy is the papacy and the Roman Catholic system. Why is that? Well, the mystery of iniquity, Paul says, is already at work. We've seen that earlier on. That means it existed at the time and has now continued and continues today and will be there at the end. So we know then that 
Number one, the Catholic Church, by their own admission, has existed since the first century when Paul was teaching and writing. And two, that they've changed and corrupted so many of the teachings of the early church since they've fallen away. And this list of apostate beliefs we can talk about is almost too long to go through. The new doctrines that the Catholic Church has created is added um, onto scripture, which we can't find anywhere in scripture. We can think of just a few, you know, the Trinity, worship of Mary, indulgences, the eternal soul, Satan as a supernatural power, demons, infallibility of the Pope, replacing the Jewish people as God's chosen people, heaven going. It's almost endless and we certainly don't have time to go through it for the rest of the evening. We read also in verse three that he's this kind of man of sin. And this word sin here, as we've mentioned, can also be translated as lawlessness. And the difference between these two aren't particularly extreme. You know, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is lawlessness. But the Pope, as we'll see later, has placed himself above all laws and ignores not only law, as defined in the Bible, but also all worldly laws as well. So the Pope and the papacy has acted in a way which is lawless, which again identifies the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, um, with the papacy. If we take some quotes from previous popes, we can see this bone out. We read, the Pope is the supreme judge, even of civil laws, and is incapable of being under any true obligation to them. He, the Pope, can change justice into righteousness. He can correct the laws of states and alter them altogether. And by the plentitude of his power, he can, since he is above all law, dispense from every law. This astonishing quote establishes the Pope both above worldly and spiritual law. But we don't really even need quotes to demonstrate this point. Just look at the history of the papacy. It's one of striving to achieve political domination over the states and nations around it. A huge section of its history, when we read the history of the Catholic Church, was about striving with the Holy Roman Emperor over who had the most power in the empire. There were these two sort of figures in the Holy Roman Empire, the Pope and the Emperor himself, who would be elected every so years. Uh, and they were at war in many cases uh, to achieve political domination. The Pope wanting to be the sole political and spiritual leader of the Holy Roman Empire. And the Emperor trying to claim his secular power. And so, Several wars were fought over this struggle between the secular emperor and the Pope in this kind of lust for power. And what the papacy considers its lowest moment is the point of history after the unification of Italy, where it was deprived of political power. It no longer had the ability to put itself above the laws of other nations. Um, so when Italy was united, uh, Italian nationalists really wanted Rome as their capital and their center. And so they took the traditional papal states um, where the Pope had his temporal power. And so for the first time, really in a very long time, uh, the Pope had no power um, temporally, apart from some brief periods in history where uh, he was thrown out by various rulers. Um, but sort of for the first time in a real, really major sense, uh, the Pope had lost his temporal authority and power. Uh, he'd lost the papal states. And it would desperately try and win this power back retain this temporal power and it would achieve that ultimately with the establishment of the Vatican as a state in 1929 um, we can see here of the uh, Lateran Treaty obviously doing it in a very unethical way with a fascist government Mussolini's government 
what other religious authority, especially a Christian one, there's perhaps some Islamic states out there, um, but what actual religious authority or position requires its own state, especially a Christian one, only the Vatican, so that it can ignore all spiritual and worldly laws. In what other ways is the papacy lawless? Well, many of the popes of Rome have been literally lawless, killing one another to seize power, carrying out immorality when in office, with instances of some popes even bringing in literal pagan idols to worship. It's also lawless spiritually in that it exalts false teachings, the veneration of idols and symbols, political involvement, extreme hierarchies, the worship of men, and famously indulgences, which would be the impetus for the Protestant Reformation. And we read in verse three that he'll be revealed. And this word revealed is this word apocalypse, the meaning of the book Revelation and unveiling. And so the Antichrist forces at this point when Paul was writing had not been unveiled, but they're growing in the Ecclesia, further proof of the Catholic Church and its early origins and its lust for power. We found it truly able to be revealed in its true sense. In verse four, we read that he opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, all that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is a crucial verse in our identifying the man of sin. Firstly, we read that he opposeth God. We know from many parts of scripture that he will oppose Christ at his return. We've also read how he will try the saints for many years. The Catholic Church has clearly done this to true believers throughout history. We can see it in inquisitions, we can see it in the massacre and persecution of the Huguenots in France, massacres which the papacy openly and proudly celebrated. As you, if you've seen any talks about this before, you will know the medals uh, that were given and handed out by the Pope to celebrate these massacres, which we can see on the um, picture on the left, the massacre of the Huguenots. And we can also see it in the many wars of religion over Europe, and particularly in Germany during the Thirty Years' War, where Protestants had to literally fight for their existence and for their survival. It's also true that the Pope, like the man of sin, exalts himself above all that is called God. Let's consider the authority the Pope claims. Not only has his system replaced Christ with Mary as a mediator between God and man, but the Pope claims to be in the place of Christ. Of all the titles the Pope claims, we'll find one sort of stands out. Let's consider a few of them. These are some of the Pope's titles. Just a few, by the way. His Holiness, the Holy Father, the Bishop of Rome, successor of Saint Peter, Patriarch of the West, the Prince of the Apostles, and we can go on for quite a while as well. Um, one which stands out there is the term the Vicar of Christ. And Vicar is this term really meaning to be in the place of, to stand in the place of. And interestingly, this term, or the term anti, can mean in the place of, not just opposition, but in the place of, uh, and is a meaning associated with the word when it's written in 1 John, talking about the Antichrist, in the place of Christ. And let's just consider that then. The Pope's titles then is literally Antichrist, Vicar of Christ, in the place of Christ. If that's not a um, <laughs> identification, if that's not a clear, then what else is? Um, let's just consider the word further. If, according to Catholics, Christ is God 
and the Pope is in the place of Christ, he's standing in the place of Christ, then what is that saying other than that the Pope is in the place of God and has his authority on earth? That's certainly exalting himself above all that's called God, as the man of sin does. We can see all that in the language and symbology of popes past and present. We read in documents, Catholic documents, about the role of the Pope. He have all power on earth, all temporal power is his, dominion, jurisdiction and government of the whole earth is his by divine right. All rulers of the earth are his by divine right and must submit to him. While we rarely hear such explicit claims of authority over the nations from the papacy today, it remains a key belief of the church as seen in its overtly political exercises and attempts to establish its authority over other states. The Pope was visiting Iraq very recently and pushing forward um, the mission of the church there. And we've seen, you know, particularly looking at the European Union and many of these Catholic countries, the Pope exerts a good deal of political influence in these countries. Um, and certainly it is a very explicitly political organization um, for a religious one. It has a state, it's got a government, foreign ministers, um, they make these grand visits, as we've said, to various states. You can see in this picture on the right here, uh, the Pope speaking um, in Congress in the United States. And he's also spoken at the European Parliament and many other places across the world. We read next then that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the verse where the misreading of which has led to many people adopting that futurist view. As we've established, this is based on the assumption that it must be the temple in Jerusalem. It's an unreasonable assumption to make, and perhaps if I was reading it for the first time, I might think that. Since the temple of Jerusalem was the only true temple of God, wasn't it? There's no ever real true temple of God, which has existed in physical form. We know from elsewhere in scripture though, that the temple will be built by the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ builds the temple, after destroying his enemies or he oversees the building. So the idea that the man of sin will be sitting in the temple of God after the kingdom has been established surely doesn't make any sense. Jesus will have established righteousness and peace over the earth. It would be very unusual for the man of sin, this evil character, to be in the midst of the kingdom of God. That doesn't really make any sense. We know there'll be an uprising after the thousand years, but it doesn't seem that that happens there. So what is this temple of God then? What I would suggest is that the temple of God that's being referred to is as false of, as the man of sins claim to be God. He's claiming that he's God, but he's also claiming that he's in the temple of God. This isn't really the temple of God. It's a mock temple. The temple in Jerusalem showed that Israel was the center of God's purpose and plan. And the sort of mock temple, which is the center of the Catholic church where the Rome has the seat and authority, is in Rome. Rome is this type of Babylon, which is used in scripture as the opposing image of Jerusalem. You've got Jerusalem and Babylon throughout history and Rome, if we were to study the scriptures out of time tonight, but Rome has seemed to be the successor of Babylon. And so it's interesting to note that there's a temple in Babylon, there's a temple in Rome, and then there's also a temple in Jerusalem. And so this is the mock temple that he's sitting in. He is not sitting in the true temple of God. He is sitting in this false mock temple and proclaiming falsely that he is God. He is a false God in a false temple. 
So it is here that he shows himself to be God. It's here where he declares that his authority and word is above everything else and can be used to interpret God's word himself through the doctrine of papal infallibility. And we know the kind of origins of this claim of, of papal infallibility. The Pope sort of formally declared this since losing temporal power after the unification of Italy. And in this way, the papacy sought to extend its influence and spiritual control over its followers while losing its political control. Today, it increasingly has both. And we read this term sitting um, in the temple of God or sitteth in the temple of God. And that's what the Pope does um, where he derives his authority. Um, we talk about this term ex cathedra, which is speaking from the chair when the Pope has total power. Um, it's important to note actually that the seat is more in reference to the his, his position, his position um, in the church rather than a literal seat. There is a literal seat, which they claim was the seat of Peter. They believe they have the literal seat of Peter um, and they've kind of painted it all in gold and they've put it up um, sort of sort of hanging midway from the air. It's quite interesting if you look at that um, in one of the main uh, areas of worship in the Vatican. And uh, certainly the Pope doesn't sit on there because he'd have to kind of climb up. But I'd recommend having a look at that if you have any time. So he doesn't sit in the literal seat of St. Peter's when he's declaring um, these things. It's rather a kind of symbolic thing. Um, it's the seat, the position that he's in. Okay, so next then, uh, let's just move on. Um, the next verses are interesting and at first actually quite confusing. Um, we read in verses six to seven, let's just read that through. And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. What does this mean? It's quite a perplexing um, phrase. It seems to suggest that there is some force which is preventing the full manifestation of the Antichrist or of the man of sin. In explaining this, we'll find another clue actually linking the man of sin to the Catholic Church. So this is very useful for us to do in creating that link. As we've already established, the forces which would become the Catholic Church were already at work at the time in which Paul was writing. But a force was preventing it from becoming fully powerful and from manifesting its true power that it would ultimately have described in verse four. A question to consider then is what event in history led the Catholic Church to achieve supreme political and spiritual power, allowed it to be fully manifest? I would suggest, and I'd be, I would welcome any other suggestions as to who this force could be that's withholding and what event led the Catholic Church to be fully manifested or the papacy to be fully manifested. But I would suggest that we would say it is this change in the Catholic Church, sorry, in the Roman Empire from a pagan system to a ostensibly Christian one. And we could only suggest then that it would be the seizure of power by Constantine and the subsequent events which followed where Rome adopted this apostate form of Christianity and helped it to achieve its dominant status above that of the true believers. And um, we know that Constantine has this supposed um, conversion to Christianity um, before he seizes power and he sort of attributes uh, the Christian God uh, to his success in battle and starts his period of tolerance for 
the church, the Christian church, which would ultimately become um, actually adopted as the state church as well. So is this a picture of Constantine perhaps then preparing to fight against the withholder, the person who is withholding this power, withholding the man of sin from being fully manifest? <clears throat> so we would suggest then on that basis that the withholder must be the pagan Roman emperor and the he in verse seven, perhaps then the last pagan Roman emperor. And this is made even clearer for us in Revelation chapter 12, which we don't have time to go into detail tonight, but it shows the defeat of the pagan dragon, the pagan Roman dragon, which is a popular symbol um, of Rome in its pagan phase by the forces of Constantine, briefly giving the church his rest from persecution. Unfortunately, though, this new system would become the new persecutors of the true believers only several years later. We find out more clues which can link the papacy to the man of sin in verses eight to nine. We see, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. The term that wicked means that lawless, again pointing to the lawless nature of the papacy. And this phrase, after the working of Satan, is interesting. What do we mean by the working of Satan? Paul's used the term Satan, hasn't he, previously, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, in reference to the Roman authorities and league with the Jewish leaders of Thessalonica. Here he uses the term as it would typically be used in the Old Testament as an adversary. We can find an interesting link in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10 to 15. Let's turn there. Um, so in this chapter, Paul defends his position against people claiming to be representatives of God and Christ. And in it, we can see very, very similar language to verse nine. So it says, as the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth, but what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So we see here also people whose coming was of the working of Satan. Again, proof that this force was at work in the early church. And these people also were claiming to be holy representatives of Christ, but were in fact deceivers. That's what the working of Satan means in this situation. Someone who appears good, someone who appears true, but is in fact an adversary, is in fact a deceiver. The man of sin is also a deceiver. And the papacy acts in a similarly deceptive fashion presenting itself as pure and holy while being extremely worldly. And despite the corrupt actions of the Catholic hierarchy being public knowledge, most people still assume that the Pope is a very pure Christian figure who is highly moral, decent, sincere, and kind. And people will always be astonished if you ever explain to them that the institutions of the papacy are actually extremely far from true Christianity and are often the inverse of the teachings of Christ. And it's so strange because it only takes one look at the grand churches and buildings associated 
with Catholicism to see a clear discrepancy with the way Christ worked and lived his life. You only have to have a brief read of the history of the papacy to see its high involvement in politics and its practices of incorporating paganism into traditional Christian teachings, to see a huge contrast between Christ and his followers refusal to participate in politics or warfare. That is until Christ returns. In every way, the church represents itself as followers of Christ and yet is a completely worldly institution. As we've seen elsewhere in scripture about the Antichrist, he performs false miracles as well, lying wonders as we see in this verse. There have been many supposed miracles carried out by Catholic church or leaders and we know that in order to be considered a saint by the church, as all the popes sort of formally have to be, or perhaps informally have to be, the candidate has to sort of prove that they've carried out miracles and wonders. So again, carrying out these lying wonders and miracles and signs. So just moving on slightly. So we have our final proof of the relation of the man of sin to the papacy in verses 10 to 12, where we read, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We find in this verse that not only will the man of sin be destroyed, as we read in verse 8, by the brightness of Christ's coming, but also those who followed him and believe in his lies, they will be destroyed as well. One part which seems surprising and was surprising to me when I read it through is where we're told that God shall send them a strong delusion. This seems strange. Is God causing the people to believe in the lie and to follow the man of sin? I would suggest not. There's two different terms to understand. Firstly, there's the delusion sent by God in verse 11, and there is a deception in the phrase deceivableness of unrighteousness, which we read in the previous verse. So we've got deception and delusion. Read about in verse 10 and read about the delusion in verse 11. Well, the delusion is sent by God. It only follows after an initial deception, which occurs in the hearts of the followers themselves. We know that sin itself is a deceiver and the temptation, the temptation to follow the man of sin and believe his lies comes from the people themselves, not from God. The delusion comes after this and is something quite separate. As proof of the deceit being from the man of sin, we can compare it to similar language in 2 John verse 7. I'll just read that out for us. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist denying the nature of Jesus, replacing him with Mary as the mediator, claiming that he is God, is one of the fundamental lies and deceptions of the Catholic Church and of the Protestant denominations which have continued to follow most of its doctrines. The deception works to bring forward and to reveal those people who will not find a place in God's kingdom. The delusion then, in contrast to the deception, which occurs first in the hearts of people, is a tool used by God to bring those people who have already been deceived out into the open to be destroyed by Christ. The delusion is to believe a lie, a lie which the nations under the leadership of the papacy will believe at Christ's return, that they can defeat Christ and the saints. 
those people and nations will be destroyed by Christ, as we read. They might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We see this coalition of nations being prepared now in the form of the European Union, with the Catholic Church pushing for an increasingly stronger role in it. Interesting, I, interestingly, I noticed only very recently that a push for Latin as an alternative to English as the uniting language of the European Union was suggested. Um, that would be interesting to see if that occurred. And so the man of sin, or the Antichrist, as we know, will oppose Jesus, as we have read in many passages previously at his return. And we believe he will be leading this coalition of nations, of people who have come to believe this delusion that they can defeat Christ, that they can overcome him. And they have come to believe in that delusion on the right because initially they had that deception on the left, which was caused by themselves. And so the delusion brings these people out into the open to oppose Christ and they are then destroyed. So we've hopefully established there a number of those similarities between the man of sin and the Catholic Church. Obviously, if we had more time, there's so much more we could say, um, but this is such a big topic. It's hard to cover only in one, one session, um, but I would recommend you looking more into those verses um, for more information. Let's just look then finally at the final five verses and get some exhortation from it. So the final five verses contrast the true believers with those who would be deceived, deluded and believe the lie. Reading from verse 13 to 17 then, so I'll just start at verse 17, sorry, at verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which have loved us and have given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Rather than being damned with them, the true believers will, as we read in verse 17, receive comfort. This is because they have been chosen from the creation of the world to be in God's kingdom. While those who have believed the lie have been chosen for destruction. This is a reminder then that it's not for our own effort for which we receive salvation and the promise of the kingdom, but through the grace of God. To receive this comfort, the believers are then encouraged to, in verse 15, stand fast in the face of those who will try and deceive them from within and without. Stand fast is a phrase which we can see used before, being steadfast, being immovable. It's worth noting that they're not told to hold to traditions in general, but they're told to hold to the traditions, quote, which ye have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. So this is where many of the churches go wrong, holding on to traditions which are human in origin, and we must ensure that we do not hold on to human traditions, but we hold on to scriptural traditions and scriptural beliefs. In conclusion, then, the words of 2 Thessalonians 2 are not just important for the brothers and sisters in the first century, and particularly those in Thessalonica, but also for us. The man of sin has now been revealed. He stands in the temple of God, proclaiming that he is God, and exalts and opposes himself above God. It's so important that we continue to emphatically point out the error of these apostate movements 
and make clear the differences between the teachings of Christ and the prophets and the invented traditions of the papacy and other similarly inspired movements. One way leads to destruction, to delusion, to being damned. The other leads to comfort and the promise of the kingdom and everlasting life. And we should be exhorted then to continue to stand fast in the traditions of the inspired word of God and be a light to those who have been called out to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Thank you very much.